Her husband was a police officer. He was involved in a fatal shooting while on duty. He was arrested, tried, convicted, and is now serving time in a state prison. She says unjustly. They are filing appeals, and she's here to tell her story. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com, and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. There's only one official Facebook page for the show. Do a search on Facebook for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email j at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. Contact us from Alabama. We have Ashley Smith on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Ashley's husband, A.C. Smith, also known as Cody, to family and friends, was involved in a fatal shooting while on duty. He was arrested, charged, been convicted, and is incarcerated in prison, she says unjustly, and there are appeals going on. And right now, Eddie Gallagher's foundation, the Pipe Hitter Foundation, is heavily involved in helping him get more details at pipehitterfoundation.org. Ashley, first, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. And secondly, for talking about something that's obviously very upsetting. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. And I wish it was under better circumstances. Your husband, we'll call him Cody, he's currently incarcerated. Is it Limestone Correctional Facility in Alabama? Yes, sir. And he was sentenced to how long? 14 years. 14. Oh, my gosh. So bad. That's, I got to tell people right now, this is one of the, I still have nightmares about this. Not as frequently as I did in a job, but it, it, even in the 80s and early 90s, it was always a fear that that could happen. Obviously, you weren't there when this fatal shooting occurred. Can you tell us what your husband told you? Of course. Yeah. So um, he was actually, he'd been on the force for several years and he was working a detail. This was not his assigned district. They had pulled him out of his assigned district to work a burglary detail because there was a specific area of Montgomery, Alabama, where there were rampant burglaries and they weren't able to get control of that area. And so they pulled him due to his proactive policing and um, said, Hey, we need you in this area. We need to catch the person that's doing all these break-ins, stop anything and everything that's moving. doesn't matter what's going on. If there's someone walking, if there's someone, you know, that looks like they fit the description or even if they don't, you need to stop everything that moves. Right. And so that was the command he was given at the beginning of his shift. Um, he got into his patrol car and started patrolling this area. About two in the morning, he noticed a subject walking down the street that um, did fit the description of the person who had been breaking into the vehicles, but also um, he was just wearing dark 
um, baggy clothing. It was February, so naturally hoodies and things like that are being worn at that time of year in the middle of the night. But it's a strange time of night for anybody to just be walking down the sidewalk, you know. So he stops him and gets out of his patrol car. Um, Whenever he pulls up, when he notices him walking and he pulls up, the guy starts walking quicker. So naturally... You know, he parks the car, he gets out, he calls him over. Just a typical Terry stop, which is legal. There's nothing wrong with stopping. You know, he's being, he's doing his job. And so he stops him, you know, starts asking him, what are you doing out here? Where are you headed? Type of thing. And so at first, the subject is compliant. Um, He keeps reaching into his front hoodie pocket. And as he's reaching into his pocket, Cody, um, gets, you know, he decides for his safety that it's necessary to do a frisk. Um, He doesn't know if this guy is carrying any weapons or anything like that. And so he tells the guy he's going to do a frisk. And the guy, you know, puts hands on his vehicle. During the frisk, um, Cody feels a hard object at, he kind of starts getting squirrely. The subject starts getting squirrely. Cody feels a hard object at his waistband. He radios for backup. When he radios for backup, the guy shoves him and takes off running. So the second that the subject shoved the officer, that's a charge. You can't put your hands on an officer. Um, Especially at this point, nothing. There's, it's just, it's escalated to something that didn't have to. He could have just let him continue with the frisk and then go about his night. If he had found anything on him, he shouldn't have had. He's got the discretion as an officer to either let him go or decide to detain him or whatever, but he didn't give Cody the opportunity to use that discretion because he decided to shove him and run. So Cody pursues. Um, During the pursuit, he's constantly radioing that he's in a foot pursuit and radioing for for backup. He is um, by his himself, he's a single unit. So, um, he didn't have anybody else with him. It was just him. Um, as he's pursuing, he's telling him the man continues to put his hands in that front pocket in his waist area. Cody tells him to show his hands, to stop running, to get down, show his hands, you know, the, the normal commands. He continues to call those commands out. The subject continues to run. And, when he continues to reach in his waistband, Cody tases him. Cody tased him four times, and the taser was ineffective. Um, he continued to resist. Cody swapped from his taser to his baton. He's using his baton in large mu- muscle groups as he was trained to do. Um, the man is hollering profanities at him um, and telling him, basically, all right, police is one of the things that he says. Um, they get on a porch, almost like a threatening, in a threatening manner. It wasn't something he was, he wasn't subduing or in any way trying to comply. He is, he is battling this. Like he's not going to let it go. It's not going to stop. He's not going to comply. They get on the porch, on a front porch, it's dark. And, um, the subject grabs a, deal enforced painter's pole. It's dark. Cody can't see exactly what he has, but he hears metal clanking. He looks and notices the subject has some sort of large pole. At this point, he's used his training. He's done his use of force. He's followed the continuum all the way, started with the taser, swapped to the baton. None of his non-lethal force 
efforts were working. And now the subject has grabbed a potentially incapacitating weapon to use against him. So Cody draws his gun and fires, and as a result, subject um, did die. Well, I, I got to say this. Thanks for, for telling us that. Uh, and so much of this sounds like things I went through. And I'll be honest with you, Ashley, I don't know why I survived sometimes and why they survived. I was involved in four shootings in a little more than 11 years. And, and thankfully, everybody survived. In the first two, I never fired a shot back. The second two were long, drawn-out affairs. So when these things happen, they happen so quickly that and we didn't have body cameras. They happen so quickly that you you kind of try to tell the story based off what you know. Uh, and a lot of mm-hmm. people say, "Well, that wasn't how it happened." Uh, and you obviously weren't there. But did he come home and tell you this that it, that occurred? Um, yes, this is his his account of what happened. Um, and the truth, you know, the office. I think that a lot of times. Um, the officer's account, there is a lot of, I don't, I don't know if research is the right word, but there's a lot of study that goes into um, how your brain processes oh, it sees trauma. things totally different. We're, we're going to take a short break. One of the things, that, and before we take another break, is that for me, you know, there's, there's a thing called audio distortion where you don't hear things the way everybody else does mm-hmm. normally. Time seems to slow down. You begin to get tunnel vision focus on the threat and only the threat. And a lot of things, even someone standing right next to you may notice that you won't. This is the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. We'll return to our conversation with Ashley Smith in just a few moments. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there are no other shows like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. And be sure to like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show Facebook page. Return conversation with Ashley Smith on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Ashley's contacts are... Alabama. Her husband, A.C. Smith, he was a police officer in Montgomery, Alabama? That's right. And he was involved in a fatal shooting while on duty. He was eventually arrested and charged with murder charges and manslaughter, convicted and doing 14 years in Limestone uh, Prison Facility in Alabama, which we will talk about in a few moments. Before we went to break, Ashley, you, you, you said that AC or Cody, as, as you have called him, told you what happened. Were you uh, made aware by phone call? Because usually when these things happen, you're there a really, really long time. Did he call you and say, hey, look, something bad happened? This shooting was back in 2016. Um, so it's been several years um, since this happened. And at the time, we weren't married. So it would have been his mom that received the phone call. Gotcha. So you weren't aware of this at all when it occurred. Right. And he actually came home um, and he still had, you know, because the way that it happened right after the shooting, he called um, for medics. Obviously, he had seen that the guy was down and so he called for medics. He tried his own efforts to save his life, but then he started having a panic attack. So he laid on the ground and he's pulling his vest and everything, trying to pull his vest off and his shirt um, and just kind of laying on his back. That's how the responding officer found him. You know, whenever I, they to got be to honest with you, 
I'm not surprised. I, I tell people this, that when the adrenaline gets going and the fear and anxiety and everything else, when it, it's afterwards when it really hits you or when it really hit me. Mm-hmm. And one of the last shootings I was involved in, I was throwing up afterwards. And when mm-hmm. you think you're going to act a certain way, uh, you quite often do not. And it, none of it is surprising right. to me. So you came into the equation after this incident occurred. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get into that in, in a so, moment. This happened in 2016? Yes, sir. And when did you and Cody start becoming a couple? So um, we were friends at the time of the shooting, but then we didn't become a couple until 2018. Gotcha. Um, so he was in the the immunity hearing phase of the legal stuff. Um whenever we started seeing each other. Um, but I was really very aware of all of the things that were happening just because of it's the kind of hard not to friendship. Be. Yeah, it's really right. It's right there out in the open. I imagine the process, and typically the process works like this. When you're involved in, and I can't speak for Alabama and Montgomery, but when you're involved in a shooting, the department gets involved, homicide in our department got involved, internal affairs. Sometimes they have outside agencies investigate it for transparency reasons. But the officer is very much treated like a suspect because they are technically a suspect right. until it's ruled to be justified. And that was obviously well, and- a, a, a problem for Cody because eventually they wound up charging him. Right. So they questioned him, sat him down for questioning within just a couple of hours of the shooting. And that is something that has changed within the protocol of the city of Montgomery's police department. They have to wait now. Like if there, if there is an officer involved shooting at their department, I think it's either 48 or 72 hours that they have to wait before they can even bring that officer in for questioning. Because what happened was they took a statement from him immediately after the shooting. He didn't even get to go home and take a shower before they were taking a statement from him. Then he goes home he takes a shower and he sleeps and he's instantly riddled with nightmares. Um, and so he's having these nightmares and he's having these different, um, he's remembering things as time goes on either differently or, but the fundamentals of his statement never changed the sequence of events, how things took place. Um, what caused the shooting, the man grabbing the pole, all of the things that were vital to his case, the fundamentals never changed. Little things like if they, how he swatted him, like if he shoved him with his elbow or swatted him with his hand, you know, little things like that, you know, either way he put his hands on the officer and you can't do that. Right. So, but they would take those little small inconsistencies and he was so transparent from the very beginning with trying to say, you know, I think I remember this different. And he didn't hold anything back because he didn't have a reason to. He wasn't lying. And so if he remembered something differently, he would be honest with whoever um, with, within the investigation to be fully transparent. And they used his transparency against him and tried to say that he was being inconsistent. Within three days of the shooting, they were charging him with murder within three days. And now they won't even interview an officer after a shooting within three days. I've got to say um, this. So and I, I checked out some newspaper reports uh, online about this incident. And first of all, I've got to say this. I don't believe everything that's written in the newspaper. I don't because they've, they've proven themselves over and over and over no. again to be biased, 
unfair. Uh, they, they twist facts to make things more sensational. But one of the things that was said over and over and over again in this is that the facts of the case justified his use of force. And I'm paraphrasing. Right. <laughs> and, you know, that's one of the things the Supreme Court said as our appeal has gone up the ladder. Um, they said, if the facts of this case are what they are, I don't understand how a properly instructed jury could have ever convicted him of this crime. Right. And place. here's what I don't get. Like, we'll get the to this facts point don't support. In, in just a moment, because I, I want to reiterate this. If it sounded like Cody did something wrong, I would be the first person to say it. Now, there's a little caveat. And one thing, I love police. I really do. But one of my biggest bones of contention with police is when there's a a really bad incident, some of the so-called tactical experts say, well, if I was there, I would have done this. Well, I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to offer what I would have done because that irritates me to no end. Because I wasn't there. I didn't see it. And uh, I can't sit in judgment. But if I saw something in a story that sounded like Cody did something wrong, I'd be the first one to say it. And from what the newspaper is saying, from what the judges have said, the facts are not in dispute. There's nothing to to argue the facts of the case, and the facts support his use of deadly force. Right. And Which, the thing about it me. is, I think a lot of people don't understand when a law enforcement officer sees a threat, He's when he acted and he drew his duty weapon and he made that decision to shoot, he wasn't just defending himself. Yes, he was defending his life, but he knew if that man got the better of him and knocked him out with that pole and he was incapacitated on the ground, then he has access to his duty weapon, to his patrol vehicle that was still running that had an AR-15 inside of it. He, This man was later found to um, have metabolized inactive crack cocaine in his system. And so you have a man high on drugs that is fighting a police officer that could incapacitate him. And I, I know that these, these are the things that these officers are trained. They are trained to respond to these situations. And then when they use their training, they are persecuted for using the training right. that they were given. And it's just unbelievable. And I'm sure the, the, the use of drugs was not admissible in court, correct? It, they did um, because it was on the autopsy. Um, so they did allow that he had drugs in his system. One of the reasons um, I bring that up were, is, is it's one of the dip, most difficult things to do as a police officer was to control someone, sub, to subdue someone that was under the influence of narcotics, especially stimulants like yes. cocaine. The other one was PCP was just horrible. And the only recourse we had, the only thing that worked was choking them out. When I say choking them out, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about strangling someone. I'm talking about Brazilian jiu-jitsu moves that cut off the blood flow of the carotid artery and they go to sleep. And then you cuff them and they come back pretty quickly. So having said that, right. many departments across the United States have banned what they call chokeholds. And they really mm-hmm. limit the tools that the officers have. One of the things okay. is, and we'll talk about it in your turn, is the tools that officers are given oftentimes don't work. The the training tactics don't work. And when they resort to deadly force, which could have been alleviated if they had those tools and tactics in place, then all of a sudden they prosecute their law, law enforcement officer instead of looking at their policies. This is the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Take a short break. We'll be right back. 
If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email j at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. Welcome back to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Return a conversation with Ashley Smith from Alabama. Her husband, A.C. Smith, uh, Cody Smith, was a police officer involved in a fatal shooting. He wound up being convicted of manslaughter, sentenced to 14 years. He's currently incarcerated. She's going to tell us that story in a moment. They're heavily involved in being supported by the Eddie Gallagher Foundation or Pipetter Foundation. Their website, to get more details, is pipetterfoundation.org. For when the break, Ashley, one of the things, and this is before your time, you're obviously much younger than I am, is we had some sayings. When I policed, we were revolver police, and we hadn't started transitioning into the semi-automatics yet. Uh, we had what we called espantoons for the style of where we use nightsticks. And everybody got rid of the department issue one and got a table leg uh, and mace. And the thing with mace, we always said, is that only worked on innocent bystanders and police. But that, that table leg espantoon served a lot of purpose, and it kept us from having to use deadly force. It kept people at distance. And you could quickly subdue someone very quickly. You said that the taser was ineffective. He went to his baton. That apparently was not very effective either. Then he had no course but to choose the sidearm. Is there anything I'm missing? No. Mm-mm. And the, the, the suspect was under the influence of cocaine. So we had stimulants involved. Uh, fighting someone under the use of stimulants, it's awfully hard to get them to subdue. It's, it's very difficult, and it, quite often they don't feel pain the way that other people do. So pain as a, a way of getting people to, to comply is ineffective as well. Right. So he's stuck in a no-win situation, and there's no other way to put it, is there? Right. And I think the biggest thing to understand is he didn't, he didn't draw his weapon to gain compliance. He didn't draw his weapon until the, the perpetrator grabbed a weapon to use against him. And I think that's been the most frustrating thing to see in the headlines is, you know, officer shoots unarmed man. Um, he might not have had a gun holding a gun to him, but if you get someone on a six by six porch and you come at their head with a metal pole, what do you think they're well, going to do? With you, metal pole. What do you think that they're going to do? I, right. I, I, I so got to say this, the, the incident that ended my career was a, and I'm air quoting an unarmed man. And he tried to grab my service weapon and shoot me in the face with it. Uh, and we fired all six rounds. Mm-hmm. And I wound up, I thought I sprained my wrist. I wound up having multiple surgeries and was retired with a couple steel plates put in there. But at the beginning, this suspect was unarmed, but he wasn't unarmed the entire mm-hmm. time. Right. And that's one of the biggest right. sources of contention I have with the news media uh, and the courts. And of course, in this case, an argument can be made that the courts really didn't care about the facts. They had come to some sort of some sort of conclusion already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that that's the issue we ran into was the judges wanted to consistently recuse themselves. There wasn't a judge in the city of Montgomery that wanted this case. Uh, no one wanted to be the judge that put an officer behind bars, but no one wanted to be the judge that didn't whenever there was 
some controversy behind the shooting. And so they kept recusing. And then we finally got a judge willing to take the case. It was actually a retired judge out of Dale County because we got a change of venue due to the area that we live in, it being so emotionally and politically charged. They did order a change of venue, so the trial actually took place in Dale County, Alabama, which is almost, I guess it's probably about two hours, hour and a half from Montgomery, from the city of Montgomery, but it's outside of our media scope. Did you think that when the trial, the facts came to light, that they would be wind up in acquittal? Absolutely. We, I didn't go. It was a five-day trial. And we did not go into trial at all anticipating a conviction. Um, I don't think we would have ended up with a manslaughter conviction if our trial representation had done what they were supposed to do and used some witnesses they were supposed to use and objected to things they should have objected to and had our judge not use some jury instruction that was confusing to the jury because Cody didn't get convicted of what he was charged for. He was charged for murder and he was exonerated of murder and charged with man and convicted of manslaughter. Um, but the jury was confused and they, they asked during deliberation for some clarification on the charges, what they meant. And um, the judge basically said, here's your law book. I explained it to you in the courtroom figure it out. And one of the jurors were overheard saying, oh, if we just give him this lesser included charge that was thrown in at the last minute, um, he'll just lose his job. They had no idea the gravity of the decision that they were making and how it was going to permanently affect our family and make my husband go from a very respected and highly decorated law enforcement officer to a convicted felon in a matter of no time. Were you in the courtroom when they announced the verdict of guilty? Yes, sir. And it's not like you see, you know, in the movies or on TV. Um, the judge comes in and reads the verdict, but then they made each juror, one by one, stand up and agree that that was their verdict. So he gave um, a guilty of manslaughter conviction, and, you know, you lose your breath. And I honestly don't even know if I was breathing for the entire time after that conviction was called out. Um, I'm sitting next to his mom and my mom. And um, then he says that they're going to have the jury stand up one by one and agree to this verdict. And so you have 12 people. I think it's actually 13 because there's a an extra, like an alternate or something like that, if one of them was to be out. And there had to be someone to fill in or something. Um, but they had them all stand up one by one and agree that that was their their verdict that they agreed to. And so after each one would say, they would say, like, juror number one, is this your verdict? They would say yes and then sit down. Juror number two, is this your verdict? And they would say yes and then sit down over and over. And so after each one... I'm praying, like, please change your mind. Um, please don't say yes, you know. And so they do that. And so it's almost like getting that guilty verdict 12 more times after you get it the first time and waiting for them, hoping and praying to God, please don't let them say yes again. And then they did. So then afterwards, um, they court adjourned or whatever. And they, I've, after the last juror, said yes, and then sat down, I had to leave. 
um, I because I didn't want to cause like commotion in the courtroom, but I couldn't stay in there. So um, I just like felt like I was gonna have a panic attack, and so I was crying, and I got up. Um, and went and sat on a bench in the hallway and some of the Dale County deputies came and sat with me because they became like family to us during that week that we were there. Um, and they came and sat with me and I just cried. And then they took me back to, um, one of the jury room area where Cody was. Um, and we sat in that room together and we cried and I wasn't under the impression I didn't know I've never we've never been through anything like this. I didn't know they were going to take him away in that moment. I thought we could have, uh, like put in for a bond or something, and it would be quick um, that he would be able to come, maybe come home. And they said no. He's they're going to you have a few minutes. I'm going to give you all some time together, but then they we're going to book him in, and I was going to have to go home, and I was going to have to leave him there at the jail. That's heartbreaking. Um, it's 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 and, heartbreaking. You tell the story, and we return the conversation with Ashley Smith. There's a lot more to this story that you need to hear about. Her husband, A.C. Smith, Cody Smith, was involved. Police officer involved in a fatal shooting uh, was arrested, tried, convicted of manslaughter and is currently serving 14 years at a prison facility. This is Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Are you looking for great products that can be game changers for people, for their physical health, for their overall well-being? Go to letpops.com. That's let. Pops.com. I take these products. They make a world of difference for me. Better energy. I sleep better every night. Full night sleep every night. Zero leg cramps and more. Many people will tell you about the wonderful things that these products do for them. Plus, it can be a phenomenal business opportunity. You can help people improve their lives and for a very small fee, get a complete back end, complete website, zero inventory no shipping none of that stuff get full details on our website letpops.com that is letpops.com return conversation on the law enforcement talk radio show with ashley smith contacts from alabama her husband ac smith it was a police officer in montgomery alabama was involved in a fatal shooting while on duty he was arrested tried convicted of manslaughter uh, and is currently incarcerated i believe it's in limestone correctional facility in alabama and the eddie gallagher from navy seals has gotten involved his foundation the pipeter foundation.org go to the website you can get more details we'll talk about them in a moment ashley when he was convicted I get how you were shocked when he was led away. Did you, I, I hate to say this? Your whole world had to have changed. Yes. I mean, I think leaving, how do you, how do you prepare having for that? to understand I had to leave him was the hardest part. I didn't know that that was how it was going to end. I didn't expect a conviction at all, but I definitely didn't expect to have to leave him behind in a jail and go home um, to our kids without him. I wasn't expecting that. I don't know how you even tell your family members, your children, that that your spouse is not coming home because they're going to jail. Uh, I, I can't imagine being killed. I can't imagine that conversation. I can't imagine the conversation you had. And I really don't understand 
all right, this is the hand you're dealt. Now, what do you do? Right. So we, we didn't know either, you know, you go through something like that and you're like, what do you do now? And so, um, there were things that should have been done, um, that were not done correctly immediately after his conviction, things that should have been filed. We don't know. We don't have a law degree. We don't know how all this works and what the appropriate thing to do is. So my immediate concern is get him home, file for um, a, an appeal bond because we knew we were going to try. Um, obviously, we're going to fight on appeal. We're not going to let the conviction be the last thing. Um, that was not what we thought was going to happen and we weren't going to let it stand. We were going to fight. And so um, we file for an appeal bond. Um, his, his conviction was November 22nd. His sentencing was in January, uh, the following January. And during that entire time, he's incarcerated. So he was in Dale County Jail from November until the end of January. Um, when they sentenced him, usually it takes months for someone to be processed from the county jail into the Department of Corrections in Alabama because the prisons are so overcrowded. Um, or it just takes time. It's not something that happens very quickly. So once he was sentenced, I wasn't anticipating any changes in his placement for some time. I was expecting that bond to come through before he ever had to see the inside of a prison. And so even though he had been in jail, I was hoping he would come home before he ever had to go to prison. Um, he got his appeal bond was or sentencing was January. And then um, within less than two weeks of after his sentencing, he was pulled from Dale County Jail and taken to Kilby, um, where he was processed in and then sent to Limestone. He was at Limestone for two months before the appeal bond was granted by the judge. Um, the judge finally granted it. And then it was, how do you get someone out of prison on a bond? And the warden is saying things to me like, I'm sorry, man, ma'am, but men don't bond out of prison. I'm like, well, my husband should have never been in your prison to start with. So we need to figure out how to make this work. And inevitably he came home. And the next weekend after he came home, COVID blew up the United States. And so the entire appeal process was grueling. The court process takes a long time anyway, um, but the process on top of COVID was just agonizing. So we start the appeal. We get all the paperwork. Um, our attorneys were flabbergasted. They said, your trial attorney didn't object to anything. What are we supposed to, how are we supposed to appeal this thing? Like, he didn't give us anything to work with. And so they had to pull a rabbit out of a hat. Um, during that time, he was home on appeal for two years. Um he came home on our middle daughter's birthday on March 11th of 2020. He was home during all the filings and the waiting for responses. The Court of Criminal Appeals during that time came back, denied his appeal. We asked for reconsideration. They denied it again. When they denied it the first time, the prosecutor asked for Cody's bond to be pulled. And the judge said, no, that's premature. They have they get to ask for a couple more things before he has to go back, essentially. So he said no. Um, then a year later, whenever the reconsideration is denied and we're going to push it up to the Supreme Court, um, the prosecutor asks again for his bond to be revoked. So the judge calls a bond hearing, um, a revocation, bond revocation hearing. We argue case law that supports 
he shouldn't have to turn himself in on this until we have a certificate of final judgment. And we don't get that until the Supreme Court makes their decision on his appeal. And the judge said he would take it into consideration. Two weeks later, he made a ruling that he had 10 days before he had to turn himself in. So he, even though we didn't have an answer from the Alabama Supreme Court yet, he said, this is taking too long. He can serve his time while they continue to fight the appeal. And so he gave us 10 days. We spent those 10 days together with our kids. And me and him actually went to the beach for a few days um, and just kind of soaked in that last little bit of time together, came home, spent the rest of the week with the children, and then carried him down to the Montgomery County Jail um, on May the 10th of 2022. And he's been incarcerated ever since. And the current status is it's a pending appeal from the Supreme Court of the state? Yeah, so this Alabama Supreme Court in December of 22 responded. They denied his appeal. They did say in that they used some really strong language and said that um, because of the way the appeal was presented to them by our attorneys, they couldn't grant us what we were asking for. But they could see that Cody deserves post-conviction relief and that this was probably the most astonishing failure that they've ever seen in a criminal case. And that they advise, and they advised us, and they never. The Alabama Supreme Court never gives legal advice, but we were advised by multiple Supreme Court justices to file a Rule 32 against our representation. And so that's what we've been doing the last nine months. As soon as we got that decision, um, I immediately started making phone calls to try to find the absolute best post-conviction attorney in the state of Alabama. And we found him, and he's out of Birmingham. He's actually the same attorney that just recently got Ben Darby out on appeal from some oral arguments on his appeal. Um, Cody and Ben were able to become friends. The time that they spent at Limestone together, and me and Keelan um, were able to, you know, get to know each other because we're visiting our husbands on the same right. weekend every month. And, it's uh, not uh, the circumstances, circumstances either one would want. I know that Eddie Gallagher yeah. from the Navy SEALs and his whole controversy is involved through pipehitterfoundation.org. Very quickly, how yeah. did you get in touch with them? So I had filled out an application for their relief um, earlier in the year, um, but I actually went to Ben's oral arguments in November um, of last year to be there for Keelan and to be there in support of Ben's situation. Um, and Andrea Gallagher was there at the oral arguments. And so I introduced myself to her and I said, I filled out this application. My husband's case is, is we need your help. Like this is really similar situation. Can you just take a look at it? So she said, of course, I sent her the information from my application. She pulled it up and almost immediately the Pipe Hitter Foundation board um, looked at the case and voted on it and said, absolutely, um, your husband deserves justice. And we want to help and, you. And they don't back people that, that are guilty. They they just don't. I'm going to tell you that That's right, right now. They they are not going to spend their resources on people that are really questionable cases. So the, there's a lot of merit mm-hmm. to that. Is Other than their website, which is pipehitterfoundation.org, is there another way people can get more information or maybe reach out to help you? We have a Facebook and an Instagram page um, under Justice for A.C. Smith. Um, both of those pages have links for the Pipe Hitter Foundation um, website and their their social media um, 
And we share in length our story, our testimony, how this has affected our family, how it continues to affect us and our children, um, and where we're at in the legal process. Ashley, uh, for those who want to contact Ashley, want to help out, you can just contact me and I'll, I will do an email introduction and take care of from there. Again, you can get more details at pipeheaderfoundation.org or just look online for justice for AC Smith. Ashley, thank you so very much for telling your story. I know it's heartbreaking and, but people need to hear it again. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the law enforcement talk radio show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.